It's almost like Talmudic scholars sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's fandom. It's like the worst excesses of academia, but for even less gain. Right. So everyone is much more vicious. <laughs> right, right. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game designer David Dunham, best known for his work on the narrative strategy games King of Dragon Pass and Six Ages. Joining us is writer and designer Meg Janth, best known for her work on 80 Days. It's just getting to rehearsals, so okay, got some time. Um, okay. Uh, oh, is this for the awards thing? Yeah, I just wanted to like rehearse myself before I go sure. in. And yeah, she's hosting the IGF Awards tomorrow. Oh, yeah. So we were just talking about when he won the prize for Dragon Pass. It was uh, like the second IGF. Oh my god! Yeah, it's twenty first this year. <laughs> yeah, it's an old game. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic. I think it's, how <laughs> you would it's past the test of time. But... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk about it, actually. So. Uh... Well, good. Cool. I'm, I'm happy to meet you finally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this we've is not the like way I you know, expected on, to do it. But. Absolutely. Like, we've talked on Twitter sort of like a bunch yeah. of times. And yeah, just, but yeah, it's great to actually be doing a podcast where I can ask you all my nerdy questions but I have an excuse. Plus, finally meet Soren. Yes. Yep, absolutely. It's great to all be together. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. so since Meg is a little bit limited in time, so let's just jump right into it. Absolutely. About uh, King and Dragon Pass. So how did the, how did this whole thing start? Like, what, uh... I guess it started because I was a, a paper and dice role player. Okay. And uh, I was playing Greg Stafford's various games, um, like RuneQuest and Pendragon. And Pendragon was the uh, 75-year saga of King Arthur, mm -hmm. where you start as a lowly knight, and eventually your kid will end up serving King Arthur. And he'll die at the end, of course. Yeah. Uh, and Greg had written... Uh, a book on the resettlement of Dragon Pass and that was kind of like, oh, that's kind of a 75-year-ish arc and that mm -hmm. would be kind of fun to do as a computer game. And I played things like Civilization and that was cool and things like Monkey Island and I kind of wanted to... And I played Castles. Sure, yeah. Which uh, Scott Benny, I think, did... It may have been just like a throwaway thing where you have these little tiny little scenes show up that like the villagers are afraid of werewolves. What do you do? right. And for me, that was far more interesting than building your castle and having it under attack. And, you know, right. most games did that, but the little story elements were seemingly unique. So that was the kind of game I really wanted to amplify. Right. So when you say, was Dragon Pass a real place, a mythical place? It's a mythical place. Yeah. Uh, Greg Stafford first, I think, published uh, Dragon Pass in 1976 or 7 as a board game. Mm-hmm. It's probably a kind of terrible board game with really weird rules. <laughs> okay. It's like really skews wildly. And, right, but anyway, sure. it was a, a, it's a mythic setting. It's his world of Glorantha. It uh, has very detailed mythology that's like not a Tolkien clone like most people end up doing. Right. You know, the elves are plant people. Right. They're living plants. They're not... You know, pointy-eared things yeah, the, cosplay. The, the duck people are in there somewhere. There's, like, there's yeah. actual the duck people who <laughs> yeah. are either... Ducks cursed with intelligence or humans cursed with duck form, depending okay. on your viewpoint. <laughs> right, right. And the, the fact that there's multiple viewpoints is also why I really like Glorantha, because there's no one thing, there's no really one truth. 
Okay. We're presenting a truth in King of Dragon Pass and sort of a different truth in Six Ages. Mm -hmm. But they're both valid. Right. I mean, I'd love to hear more about that. Like how in design terms do you try and get that multiple perspectives across in um, a game? I kind of don't because I think for the average player, that's just going to be a little bit confusing. For the style of game I was trying to pull off at the time, sort of civilization style in a way. I mean, I think you do with the council a little bit. Like, those are all conflicting voices, and they're coming from different kind yeah. of perspectives. Sure. But they don't, they're still all of the same culture. Yeah. But that's, that was interesting because, like, in games like Civ, it kind of trains people. Like, if the advisor comes and tells you something, you know, you're, they're not going to lead you astray, right? Like, it's probably going to be good advice. Right? You can ignore it, but they're not going to necessarily be, like, trying to send you down one path and like argue with each other right it's, it's all good advice too but it's all good advice from that one perspective right and actually yeah the arguing is something that um i really liked i think our best writing ended up as the advisors it, talking to each other can really have a point of view and normal advice like well we're running low on cows it's not really a viewpoint and it's it's important <laughs> you need to know it right you got to trust your advisors but Right, there's like a lot more personality there. It's not just tool tips like, oh, here's, you know, here's a functional thing I'm going to tell you. I mean, as Soren was saying, they lie to you, which is kind of amazing. But you kind of want to believe don't them. I don't know like, if they lie, but they <laughs> may withhold certain... Right. I mean, the trickster, there must have been so... I followed his advice so many times. And like nine times out of ten, something terrible happens. And yet you still think maybe there's that one time... Yep, Trickster was always fun. That's, again, part of the Glorantha mythology. I played one game where I was um, following all of the advice that the, the young... This is a spoiler, but I think everyone's played it. Caller <laughs> okay. the hero that shows up on the baby on a shield, and then she grows up. And I, you know, everyone loves her, so I decided to follow. Whatever she recommended, I would do. And do. it was usually terrible advice, because <laughs> she's not really a clan advisor. She's a hero. Mm -hmm. So she has a very different take on things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for me, one of the most interesting things was um, that if you try and play King of Dragon Pass with present day morality, doing what a contemporary person would think would be the right thing, you very quickly drove your clan into the ground. Right. That's, um, I think it's ironic that King of Dragon Pass is actually a role playing game. You have to play right. as if you were an Orlanthi, okay. as opposed to what usually gets called role playing in computer games, where right. it's basically just leveling up a character. Yeah. Right, and you and the kind of the mechanics, the entire game is built around kind of teaching you very painstakingly the the morality in the context of the time. Right. Again, that's why the advisors are there because they know it. Right. Mm -hmm. We we kind of don't really expect the player to to know that, but we do want you to get immersed as much as you can. Yeah. Well, I think it also points out like how standards various tropes are in video games because you know your games often present you with a series of choices and they pretty much want you to play make the choice, right? Like you're making the choice that's healthy for the long term blah 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 and like, you know, or or you're you're going to be nice. You're not going to, you know, you know, there's an affair and you're not going to like force someone to commit suicide or whatever, you know, you're going to choose some, some nice choice or whatever. Um, and, uh, but the, the point is that there's certain, there's certain ramifications that you wouldn't necessarily expect in other games where like appearing weak, like is a problem or like, right. you know, like letting your, letting people, um, you know, violate tradition or pass laws, you know, like that's, you know, that's something that a lot of games don't really deal with. Right. They just deal with still kind of like current morality just transplanted back then. Right. And to some a small degree, you build your own morality in the clan questionnaire at the start. Right. 
you know, you want to be true to your clan ancestors. So, but you get to choose mm-hmm. your clan ancestors' decision. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked how the game, how you started the game. Like, I think that was a really strength strength of the uh, the, the the series. That actually um, came from Greg Stafford's uh, one of his paper and dice role playing games. Where okay. he was trying to do a similar thing. I guess right. he he actually may have done a paper prototype in a very very loose way of the game. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good mechanically, but also like. A game like this is difficult because you're going you're going to be dumping a lot of lore on the player. So the fact that you can make a my, choice, uh, my talk, <laughs> right? Yes. I yeah. think this is one of the slides in the Six Ages yeah. talk. Yeah, because it's really the same game system and style. Right, just a different part of the Glorantha mm-hmm. setting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about actually the making of so the making of Dragon Pass. So you know, you said you had this idea. You're inspired by some games. Uh, I don't quite remember. Did you say? Did you need to contact Greg at that point? Like, how yeah, did this I all think work? We were. I'd occasionally see him at conventions, okay. at game conventions, and we ha- we corresponded on paper in those days. Okay. Um, and we sort of were converging on well, what what sort of thing would we want to see in a computer game? Okay. And he was he was open to the idea from the beginning. He was very open to the idea. Um, he's a, was a great licensee because he. He wanted approval, but it was a pretty loose form of approval. Right. It's not like working with Hasbro or something where the team of lawyers is going to vet whatever you right. do and make sure it fits the brand. Yeah. I mean, he, he understood that a computer game could have a different, a totally different outcome to the history he'd already written. Yeah. He was totally fine with that. That's good. Yeah. Okay. And he was also involved that we could talk on the phone every week. Right. Although it usually wasn't ter- directly related to the game. Right. Okay, so you uh, you got him on board, and you guys started applying it. And uh, so, how did you? I mean, what did you think you wanted to do at the very beginning? Like, did, was your were your original plans fairly different, or like was it? Uh... I think it pretty much ended up the way, and in a loose sense, at least, it was pretty much um, the way I envisioned it, which is my lucky game designing <laughs> when I can do that. And mm-hmm. I think it's only happened about twice. Right. <laughs> sure. Uh, but. Clearly, a lot of stuff did end up changing over time once we had a playable game. But yeah, we always we needed the clan council. We knew it was going to be a long series of a, a story, and that the events would be equally important to the economic model. Right. Were were your players surprised or taken aback by you know some of the more opaque choices in the game and the more kind of narrative ones? Because that's quite unusual. For, Probably means unusual. Yeah, we didn't. In the long run, yes. I don't think that was as big a concern in my original testing. I'm not sure why. Maybe maybe because it was a, a more narrow audience that was already uh, they were familiar with the setting, and they had some expectation for what the setting meant. Right. But it is true that a lot of people uh, believe it's an entirely random thing, and all your choices have random results, and they do all have a random factor, mm-hmm. but pretty much everything has been influenced by some previous decision you've made or that that specific decision yeah right like with my narrative designer head on playing the game you'd certainly start to see tendencies if not like sort of it's very hard i think it would be quite hard to write a walkthrough that's perfect without spending a really long time doing so i mean was that something that you thought about were you deliberately trying to frustrate kind of people min maxing there is no perfect walkthrough it was actually one of the design goals we tried to make there's typically were five choices for any interactive scene, right. and we wanted to make it such that none of them was obviously wrong and none of them was obviously right. It was 
intended, and we didn't always make it work, but it was intended to be sort of a, which set of trade-offs do you want? Do I want to piss off my own ancestors or do I want to piss off my neighbor or do I want to piss off the non-human ducks or something? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think it gets at, this gets at like a real core question about game design, about this question of like, you know, like transparency versus like kind of like a black box, you know, where like, uh, generally speaking, the games I make, like I aim directly for transparency. You know? Right. If you're doing if I, a, like a war game. Right. Like when I was at Shenandoah, everything, we had the exact rules and yep. the combat results tables were in the game. Yep. As a narrative, I don't believe you have access to that information. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, players got, can get frustrated. Well, they, they don't get frustrated when they get lucky and succeed. Sure, right. They get frustrated when they think they should have succeeded. And that's actually one of the things that I took into account. In Six Ages, we tried really hard that if you failed, one of your clan council will comment on why you failed. Oh, that's interesting. And maybe yeah. suggest, well, if only we put more magic into Harmony, people would have put up with that decision. Yeah. I mean, I think because... With, with 80 days and the work that I do, I'm often more on the like more opaque side because I think it's actually narratively more interesting because, I mean, I think I think there is there are player frustrations, but I think also sometimes like failing can be a, a good story <laughs> and it can be dramatically more interesting, right? I agree. And that's, uh, I, I think most people, many people will like reload after a failed hero quest and right. you won't get to see some of the weird mythic effects. Like your maps are scrambled because you went on a, Hero quest, and you did something that was related to communications, and you screwed up. Right. God, that's amazing. That has never happened to me. I'm going to have to go back and replay <laughs> until that does. Uh, I think it's the probably the history's hero quest. I can't remember for sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm actually going to get tips on this one. I'm going to write that. Down. Do, do, were you generous? I don't really remember. Were you generous with reloading in the original Dragon Pass? Yes. Okay. Yes, and we um, the iOS port. I made sure that yep. re, that saving was automatic. Yeah. I made a lot of use of that, not necessarily because I wanted to like change the outcome. I was just curious, right? You know, sure. like, you know, we wanted to poke at the system and like, you don't really, you can't really learn this. I mean, this is, you're supposed to be thinking about this because you want people to learn about the system, like learn about how the game works, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. one of the core reasons why you play games, right? But like, and so one of the most effective ways of doing that is unfortunately like outside of the game, which is like essentially doing the same event two or three times and like, seeing how it changes. Whereas if you only see an event once, you make a choice and you get a result, you know, it's going to, you're going to learn a little bit, but not the same amount as if you're like kind of trying something two or three times. Right. And even, and you pretty much would have to reload because if you play again and you get the same event, the context is different. different, Yeah. It might be a different clan that's coming to you. That's not a friendly clan. And maybe you do want to piss them off then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that like when I was talking about like that continuum between transparency and opaqueness, like I think the actual, the difficulty actually comes in the middle area. Like if you're a game that commits to transparency, like you should commit all the way. Right. Whereas if you're a game that like, you know, stuff is good, stuff is happening behind the scenes. Like, you know, obviously you want to, like, it's, you know, it's a great idea to, um, you know, have, you know, have the counselors like explain like why something might have failed. But you wouldn't want to kind of you wouldn't well man you wouldn't necessarily want to expose like half of the mechanics but not the other half right right we I take pains to try to keep everything in world there's right we do have a bird's eye view type of modern map just Mm -hmm. because it it just I think it would be really hard to play otherwise but people have asked for like bar charts of your progress or something and this feels totally wrong for a Bronze Age world right 
okay, we have writing too, and most people couldn't read. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, with with that, with those little, a few little caveats to make it playable, we mm-hmm. try to keep everything from an in-world viewpoint. Um, I know, like the Fallen London games, will show you the options you can't use right now. Right. But they have a totally different business model for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. That they want to maybe sell you that content that's fate locked or something. Well, right. I mean, they've moved from from that kind of microtransaction model to like making premium games now, but the system was developed very much with that in mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I know I know that actually they've changed from um, they now have um, invisible qualities and variables, which they, they didn't before. So, so you can kind of tell that movement from microtransaction to like more premium. Right. And hiding stuff from the player is something you can do when they don't need to buy the next bit. Right. But yeah, I've, I keep seeing games that show you the, a locked choice and it feels gamey and not like yeah. now you're not in the world anymore. Your advisors don't tell you what, what you might have been able to do if only you had enough cows. Yeah. Interesting. So you never you never consider doing that? No, that wouldn't be immersive. Okay. Mm. How much do you think, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about how that the tabletop kind of thinking and, and aesthetic like made a difference because I think I think it really does. And like someone who played tabletop games before they... Uh... Yeah, I'm not... I mean, I, they're different things to mm-hmm. me. They have different... Um, I play tabletop around a table. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of people who now do it with some online thing and that, that wouldn't be the same experience <laughs> for me. On the other hand, I'm weird and I play my game solo and I don't get online and shoot all my friends until I'm the winner or, mm-hmm. or the loser. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm just the reverse. Um, yeah. But at the same time, we were actually, um, I was in a, a game where one of my friends was running basically the same campaign as a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. So one of my characters sort of ended up in the, the game. Oh, that's really interesting. A little I mean, bit changed, but the, uh, the yeah. seducing poet was based after my character in the role-playing <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I think there's something that feels a little bit kind of social and human about like those those events that happen it kind of feels a little bit like there's a gm kind of following you and 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 responding to you and i think that responsiveness is is kind of what i was thinking of when i when i I think that was always our holy grail if we'd really like to make a something that gives you the role-playing experience of a role-playing game and not just the dice rolling and checking the charts to see if you hit sort Mm -hmm. of thing right yeah all right. Did you um? So what did you what did you learn during the development of the first game? Like like when you did you know you did you did start like what like how did you like for the the events for example like how did you figure out how to write like good events? I not, <laughs> well, first of all, I hired someone really good to do it. Okay. Uh, Robin Laws had been um, from the tabletop role playing scene and. Mm-hmm. I think he'd always wanted to write in Glorantha because it's such a, a seminal thing for, for the entire role-playing hobby, really. Right. Um, but it was, it kind of, I don't know, it, it was pretty close to what we I started with. My first scenes are largely a model for the ones that ended up in the game. So maybe I didn't learn anything. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, later I realized... I mean, I guess I'm curious about, like, were there events that you tried where you felt like you weren't happy with them? Or, like, were there any, like, you know, sort of principles you came upon of, like, what makes for a good, a good event? Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I realized, especially after playing Fallen London, 
which apparently was inspired by King Dragon Pass, was that you don't actually have to have five responses, which mm-hmm. it can be really hard to make five that are yeah. all of equal sort of impact or goodness. Yeah. So the, and the next games, I, I nominally cut that down, although it turned out we ended up with an awful lot of five response scenes anyway. Yeah, there still seemed to be a lot of that. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it's not surprising. I think I think Fallen in London very much draws from King of Dragon, pa- Dragon Pass. I know that that was one of our design pillars for 80 days as well, and like a lot of the, the stuff that wow. you're talking about. Like, no, completely. I mean, I don't think there's anything else out there that has that similar kind of an attempt at multiplicity that, that's a little bit about like tendencies as well that's that's kind of hard to pass apart um but yeah it's 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 so curious that that was something that you learned from playing is is there anything that like when you were playing fallen london made you reflect back on king of dragon pass and be like oh that's what we were doing well like that was that was one of the most explicit ones (laughs) yeah uh, you don't have to have a a lot of responses Mm -hmm. if they're reasonable Mm -hmm. and you have to reach for them um we had a few things where um it turns out you, there's a, we were hoping randomness would get you out of some of the sort of cycles in some King of Dragon Pass scenes where mm-hmm. you have to try to resolve a situation. And if you don't, it comes back to bite you, sometimes literally. And some of that just turned out like you could get really unlucky and keep having the same event over and over. And we never really wanted that to happen. We, I guess we assumed if you're doing this on tabletop, the game master would kind of right. lean in and... Yeah, actually, you succeeded finally on the eighth time. And right. The biting monsters are gone. <laughs> and I know, um, on I forget the context now in one of the Six Ages scenes, but I was telling Robin Laws that we have to make this such that the failure isn't so bad that we, it'll be interesting, but so many players will reload and they'll never right. get to see the cool part of failure. Yeah. And he was going, wow, I've never had to do that. And, you know, like writing... Uh, a paper module. Yeah. Right. I mean, so how, how do you do that in terms of design and writing? How do you tell people failure is okay? Because, I mean, that's something that we struggled with in 80 days as I, well. Yeah. Because there's no reload, and we want you to keep going, <laughs> even beyond, you know, um, the deadline. Yeah, I mean, at least you always have an interesting journey in 80 days, and I, I would hope that the, the story yeah, is still absolutely. interesting. But there is a win condition, and yeah. people like to win, and... Especially if you've invested, a, I don't remember the our, our playtime now, but you can spend an awful long time. And yeah, I think it's you don't a want lot to more waste than... your entertainment time. And have right. to go through the the starting game over again. It's, it's hard to judge like how impactful the, the failure should be because if you know there's reloading, then you also know that like there's kind of a limit to how harsh you can be. Right. Yeah, I mean, my QA lead came up with the idea of limiting reloads as an option, mm-hmm. so you can. You can play in the iron mode with mm-hmm. no reloads at all, right. which some people choose to do anyway, but we'll yep. enforce that for you if you, if you decided that. Yep. Or you could have exactly one reload, and yep. then you have to parcel it out. Is this such a bad situation? Yep. But that's not yeah. really answering the question of how do you make it interesting. It's I mean, a different it, challenge. It, yeah. of- I, think that's a really, I think that's a really interesting solution, though, is to hook into that part of the player's psyche that wants to win and make part of the win condition playing it the kind of way that you wish they would play it. Which is, in a way, more role-playing and narrative. Yeah, I guess I'd wish they'd just play it and not reload, but... Yeah, so I, when I was playing it, I kind of, like, I was curious... Because one of the... I'm okay kind of with the events being very opaque. One of the hard things I had was that the strategic side of the game was also very opaque. So, like, I was very curious if there were certain guardrails on the game that kind of, like, kept me, 
like kept kept me from like getting either too successful or too weak because if there's some sort of bad event if i don't have a way to judge like okay it's it, it told me this is a bad event but i don't really know how bad of an event it is because right. i don't know what the what the rules are that control like how much my people are eating and like how my cows are going to multiply and, and all that stuff so like you know i'm not able to judge like should I just roll with it or not? So I'm curious, like, if you guys... Yeah, in 1999, we probably didn't do a great job with that. Uh -huh. and I think one of the reasons was we had no way to gather data on how play actually worked. Right. So with six ages, I can, you know, use any number of libraries and get data on stuff. And, like, that was one of my playtest things was I, I always made graphs of mm -hmm. everyone's cows and goods and charted right. over time and... Are they in a death spiral or not? <laughs> right, sure. Are they losing for some other reason or winning for some other, you know, what's what's with the mood always crashing? You know, I could actually look at the data and and try different techniques to adjust for that. Um, I think King of Dragon Pass did have a few sort of adaptive difficulty right. things where if you were really doing poorly, we would try to give you a happier scene to keep you from losing. And Six Ages also tried to make some of the economic models, the badness, more visible. Mm -hmm. It'll be in my talk too. Mm -hmm. okay. The GDC fault. <laughs> uh, but you, the, the model of the, we modeled. Ex explain um, that exactly. So Robin Laws was proposing that uh, we would show in the user interface that cows are declining. Right. Because that's the sort of thing that anyone in the world would know, but the player may not be aware of. Mm -hmm. But. Yeah, your cows may decline all, you know, what level of declination is meaningful? And that actually sounded too hard to implement. Right. But it, it was, it sparked the idea that having something hurting your cows is a story situation. Mm -hmm. So we added the idea of concerns, which like herd stress or yeah. uh, some spoilery things too that happen mm -hmm. during the game as the world gets worse. Yeah. And um, those yeah, I, are something that we can show. They clearly hurt the economic model. They have a significant impact on the economic model. It's not just like a 1% modifier King of Dragon Pass would often use. Yeah. You know, it adds up over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a long game, 1% can really make a big difference. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you, so I, yeah, I, I, it's been too long since I played Dragon Pass and I like where the, changes were but like i certainly noticed that in six ages that those those little status indicators and you have the opposite as well like when you have some sort of yeah there's bounties bonus and bounties and right yeah we threw in warnings which right. is probably closer to what robin was thinking of yeah mm -hmm. if you're if you lose all your elite warriors you yeah. want to know about that right away mm -hmm. yes your advisors tell you but yeah and i thought that was actually really useful because there is like a bit of an aimlessness challenge i think with the strategic part of the game where like the events come up and like bang like here's a very here's a choice right and you have like exactly these options right. and it's, you think about it it's a 4x game without any with maybe one of the x's right, <laughs> right. so yeah, yeah you're you're used to playing it one way where i want to build up my military and right. conquer all my neighbors and get, right. get my tech tree running and yeah. And you, in the strategic game, you like you explicitly as a game of like action points, right? You've got like a couple right. moves per season or whatever. And so like that, there's actually a real chunky board game aspect to that part of the game. It's just that like, it's very much, you don't know, like, it's very hard to see how, you know, what's the, what's the, how to compare like, okay, I'm going to go out and forage versus I'm going to go try to hire some more warriors or I'm going to go do a raid. Like you, you still have to play that somewhat intuitively, but I felt like the, 
the the penalties and bonuses, like making that explicit, was really useful because you know it just helped guide me, right? As opposed to like every time there is a season, it's just like, well, what should I do now? And I'm like, well, I I don't know, you know, <laughs> like that, that's potentially a problem. Yeah, sort of a design goal was that you'd always have too much to do at all, but right. mm-hmm. but you also have that analysis paralysis of well, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, there is sort of a tech tree of building up your knowledge of the gods, but then once you hit that, you've run out of that. And... Oh, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the knowledge of the gods and magic and propitiation and, and those systems as well. Yeah, I mean, that probably was explicitly our technology tree. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it was an extremely hand-weavy thing. I mean, it's probably totally unrealistic for granted people to forget all their god knowledge <laughs> just because they moved, but right. it fit the game. Mm-hmm. So we hand wave that, but that I suppose it also helps teach you that what all the abilities are instead of giving you the giant lump of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's it's all kind of parceled out. But but also, I mean, a lot of the ways in which you discover so much of it is kind of through trial and error, right? Right. Well, I think you're maybe leading at the fact that one of the sort of currencies is information, mm-hmm. and particularly information about the mythology. And one of the goals I wanted to have was to have uh, hero quests, which are fairly unique in, in mm-hmm. Glorantha, that you reenact a myth, and by doing the same things the god did, you get magic. I guess it's a little bit like a Passions of Christ thing, you know, what <laughs> magic you get from that, but yeah. you're infused with godness, I guess, which is yeah, absolutely. something. Right. <laughs> but um, in Glorantha, you get a physical benefit mm-hmm. to your clan from doing it, and... Um, you have to know what the god did. Exactly. To do it. I mean, I think that was a really interesting thing for me. And like, as I started playing it, I was like, okay, wait, have I just missed something here? And then you realize, I, you know, there's, there's the lore of the world and you build it up. And I think it's one of those things that's really interesting because it kind of relies on you to remember some of that stuff, which is also something that a lot of games, even now, don't really require of you. Like, yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge for a lot of players, mm-hmm. cause, maybe because they they're not used to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, is this a test? I have to remember all that. And it's also tricky because the world of the gods is sort of intentionally random Mm -hmm. because we're only humans and A, you can't necessarily do what a god does. You know, I know I'm supposed to rip the arms off the monster, but I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good hero, but I'm not the god and I might (laughs) fail at that. Mm -hmm. And that throws you off the rails. And the fact that there's always, according to Greg Stafford, there was always a, a hero quest surprise because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the it's you don't have a perfect map of the other world, and it's the gods' war, and every the gods are fighting, and it changes every time. And I think that's the biggest complaint we got was that the hero quests felt random, right? And they're supposed to, but they're also yeah, it's I, tricky. It's, I mean, that's the part that seems the closest to if it was like an actual choose your own adventure thing, where it's like there seems like there's theoretically a path, but if there was like a golden path, then it would. You just everyone figure out what that is, and that would be the end of it. So, right, no and there is a there is sometimes a better path because it's what the god actually did. Right, yeah. that's probably easier, but it may not be easier for the character you are sending to the other world. So, I love that aspect of it. I have to say, but I can also imagine that. Uh, but in some ways, like I, I guess I was in a kind of I'm just playing this in this sort of narrative role playing, enjoying enjoying it kind of way, rather than with a like strategic goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so curious, is there, is there, was there like one hero quest in particular that, I don't know, that, that you guys disagreed on or that like, you know, or the play, the players found was baffling? Cause... 
We certainly didn't expect some of them to be as hard as they were when we wrote okay. them. The cow mother hero quest is one of the one of the worst, if not the worst, and that wasn't. I don't think that was what we knew was going to happen. What what makes it so hard? Uh, because her in her myth she has to withstand attacks by biting things mm-hmm. multiple times, <laughs> and the the cow herding lady you typically would send is not necessarily a buff warrior who can withstand that sort of I stuff. See. Just because your goddess managed, that's why she's your goddess because she could survive. You know, worship some you know animal that's now extinct because their that animal mother didn't survive the biting things. Yep. Right, and so, but um, so uh, what did you did you think about changing the quest when you realized it was much harder, or were you like, actually, it's all right for some of them to be a little bit more difficult? I than think I decided we would try to communicate the difficulty to players as much as we can. Yeah. We don't require; it's not one of the required quests. Mm-hmm. You never have to do all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of them, yeah, they, they're going to be different. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the uh, diplomacy a little bit. Um, so, like, you, uh, you know, making friends or enemies with the, other, with the other tribes. Like, what was your sort of vision for that? Like, what, you know, how did that fit in with the rest of the game? Yeah, the basic idea was that your clan relationships were mm-hmm. equally important to your economic system, basically. Mm-hmm. It really is it's a political economic simulator. So um, there's all sorts of sort of sub-relations with the clans that you mm-hmm. have to worry about. Both Greg Stafford and I had been reading a lot of uh, Icelandic sagas, and we wanted mm-hmm. to have feuds. Right. And feuds, kind of like when you're, you know, you blow up with your significant other, it's not really that you left the cheese out overnight. It was, it's all been built up with little things that we call them slights in the game. Right. Probably a little more serious than... You know, leaving the toilet seat up or whatever, but um, you piss off a clan and it, all of a sudden you're at war with them. Well, it's not really all of a sudden, but you've built up to a threshold and, and now they want a feud. But that was sort of um, how the people feel because they're the ones affected by many of these slights. The leadership may have a different opinion of you, and that was whether the clan likes you or not. Uh, you, ha- you have trade with them. Uh, you may be also alluding to the political negotiations for building a tribe Mm -hmm. and that was sort of its own little game system and once you're a tribe and you might be the king you can clans would um like you in a different way based on how you treated them as a king right whether you ruled in their favor or not and something that probably there's no real right answer it's just who do you want to favor and you have to decide right so there's also we call it wins and losses so there's all these layers of political and relationship complexity. I mean, I think so. Um, Soren and I the other day were talking about, like, that you never really want players to start to feel too comfortable <laughs> and that, like, being able to perfectly balance everything is is actually kind of death. Even though that's what players want to do, that's really not what you want to have. You want chaos, right. really, and you want upset and change. It kind of feels like... That's something you don't really have to worry about a lot in King of Dragon Pass. Like, I don't think that I managed to successfully balance anything. Like, I always felt like I was one step away from, like, utter disaster and ruin, which I think is great. Yeah, that's... That was certainly what we... I don't know if we explicitly were designing for that, but that's definitely what I wanted it to be. And there's probably a little bit more explicit stuff in Six Ages where... 
certain things can trigger once you have your you figured out kind of working economy. Now I can hit you with more stuff because it wouldn't be kicking you while you're down. Oh, nice. Okay, so that's that's something you explicitly put in there, in in the new game. Okay, tell me a little bit about that, like. Um. I mean, and is there some of that in King of Dragon Pass as well? King of Dragon Pass, it wasn't doing it for in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. It does have sort of a, I don't know if it's an act structure. Mm-hmm. And you do go from, we did assume you would be building yourself up and could sort of earn the right to become, to form a tribe and, and become king. And then you'd earn the right to become King of Dragon Pass. It's a much simpler and uh, explicit progression in that game. It's right, right yeah. in the name of the game. Right. Maybe people are surprised you can be Queen of Dragon Pass, but <laughs> that's that's certainly doable too. Um, and Six Ages wasn't just the name of the game doesn't tell you right. anything about what you do in any one game. It's sort of an allusion to maybe I'll make six games and you'll have thousands of years of history for your clan. But uh, but that has sort of some gateway stuff that I was explicitly I didn't want people to get too comfortable with the economy and in King of Dragon Pass. Some players really struggle, mm-hmm. and some players have figured out how to make it work. And they, I've seen people who basically, in the original original version, have overflowed the sixteen uh, bit integers on, oh, wow. on stuff. <laughs> Jeez. No, that's not really a bug. Well, maybe it is, but yeah. <laughs> right. Guess what? The world's crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting. So, what's I mean. Uh, you know, there are probably a lot of things you didn't anticipate, you know, when you first made Dragon Pass, how people might play. Yeah, emergent and behavior can be really tricky. Sure, yeah, yeah. What's So what's some of those paths to, like, you know, kind of, like, break the economy of the game? Uh, there was, in King of Dragon Pass, the, the original um, desktop version, there was a, a a slider where you were supposed to adjust your number of crafters. and Yeah. Apparently no one playtested that where you always max it out and... Suffer that there were some trade offs for doing that, but if you played long enough, you would end up with tons and tons of goods. And that isn't what the intent ever was. And it feels totally wrong for an uh, agrarian economy to suddenly have all this useless because, wealth. Is that because there was, <laughs> nothing, there was nothing that was like naturally sucking away your goods? So they just kept stockpiling? There was, but not, yeah, not to that extent. Right. I mean, it's a sort of thing that if you play for five years, it's probably not even noticeable. But in a, a long game of King of Dragon Pass, I think it's nominally like 70 or 75 years, and mm-hmm. things can really snowball. I certainly saw that once I could gather metrics in Six mm-hmm. Ages, and mood was a, a big thing that. It's supposed to indicate your the sentiment of your people. Right. And it's a little bit of a what is truly called a positive feedback cycle, but people don't like to say that because it hurts you. Right. <laughs> but you know, like a squealing microphone is positive feedback. The, wor- the more you add to it, the worse it gets. And it turned out you could easily get into these giant mood problems of either going skyrocketing such that the normal... Oh, we feel sad about this, but we're still jubilant as a clan. That's right. Yeah, it didn't quite feel right. Yeah. Uh, so there's some um, some fudging going on to try to keep from going all the way off the charts yeah. and still have those micro things that should impact things have more of an impact. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, because I think so much of it is about like increasing choices and smaller choices that I think once you get to those extremes if it becomes impossible to kind of come back to a, to a neutral state, then 
you know, that mood mood shift sort of ceased to matter. In right, and I didn't want them to cease to matter, so. Yeah. But again, having better data made that easier to see. It's. Done. I mean, it, it, can you, like, explain a little bit more what you mean by fudging? In that it's, um, it sort of turns into, a, like, a logarithmic thing mm -hmm. instead of being linear. It always goes up. We're never going to cheat you out mm -hmm. of your mood gains, but right. instead of... I, mean, I don't know what the formula is exactly. Maybe instead of a, a full 10-point increase, it'll drop to a 5-point increase. So you basically have diminishing returns. It's a diminishing return. Right. right. Okay. And we realized that a lot of, in fact, King of Dragon Pass, a lot of the bonuses could, could be ridiculously high, and we turned a lot of those into a diminishing returns, mm -hmm. which actually feels more natural for a lot of yeah. things. Yeah, that's a good. I mean, that's a good system overall. I mean, I usually, I usually try to think of it like a spring. You know, if you could push a yeah. spring in, it starts resisting, and the opposite. If you pull a spring mm. out, it'll kind of it tries to be back to like the the central state. Yeah. Right? Anything at all you can do to influence your odds of something, we that should help. But yeah. just because you dump everything possible in, maybe the designers didn't realize you'd be in that world of I could sacrifice a hundred cows anytime yeah. I want. Yeah. All right, right. but you're not going to get a hundred. You know, yeah. 100 times the one cow. Yeah, you know. well, especially a game where it's so unknowable where a player is going to be 10 hours into the game. Exactly. Right? You have to kind of protect yourself against stuff like that. I guess that's something I, I learned more from. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seeing the emergent behavior. Yeah, yeah. How, so how did you plan out the scope of both games? Like, you know, how long you thought it should be and like, you know, well, what the, and also the narrative, like what, you know. Yeah, it was, uh, it was sort of market-driven and King of Dragon Passes. Uh, back in that era, people mm -hmm. expected to get 40 hours of play out of a game. Right. And I didn't think I wanted you to play for 40 hours in a <laughs> row for one story. Right. But so that was partly why we had the short game and the long game. Okay. And the whole concept of the replayability was to, we wanted you to play it more than once to get to your 40 hours so right. you'd like it and get good reviews. Right. Um, I think we actually ended up insanely replayable, right. which mm -hmm. is one reason it passed the test of time. Yep. There's always something you haven't seen if you play it again. Yeah. Yeah. What's the difference between the short and the long game? A uh, short game, you do not become King of Dragon Pass, you just have to form a tribe. Oh, okay. And I think that's closer to like 30 game years, right. as opposed to maybe 70. Do you, do you think there's like one is significantly better than the other? Like, people should... Depends on how much you're willing to put into. Okay, so they're both they're both viable experience. I mean, because I it's so replayable, you didn't you didn't necessarily have to worry about the. You didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, that it was insanely replayable. That there's yeah. that there's um, well, the Harry Potter novels didn't exist then, but I think the word count that we ended up with with all the additional content in King of Dragon Pass is about as if you took the first five Harry Potter novels. Mm. And had all that many words. Yeah. Obviously, you don't read them all at one time. There's a lot of there's <laughs> sure. five response. There's five choices, and yeah, yeah. there's success and failure in each one. And there's alternate text to help make things more fresh and unknowable yeah. when you replay. Well, RAM event games are tough, and I'm sure Meg has some thoughts on this too. In terms of like, sure, you write a lot of text, but if someone sees the same event three times, even if they haven't seen ninety percent of the the text, it gives them an impression about like, oh, I'm starting to run out of you know, the content or whatever. Um, yeah, we didn't want you to see the exact same text again if we could avoid it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I didn't want a branching narrative because that's insanely impossible to right. deal with all the commutation combinations. Yeah, I mean, I think some something like 80 Days where uh, 
you're I think we we did a lot more branching like right at the beginning of the game like in London and Paris and I think we add a branch where you can you can start leaving via somewhere or like one other place I think Cambridge rather than Oxford because of Johnny Gold um and like and I think it, it became we immediately realized it was like super important right at the beginning to be like okay then the second time the, like the first time a person replays in the, they need to see very clearly that the game is not ex- in exactly the same way because I think the openings are very memorable in some ways. So I think it was in some ways easier for, for us in some senses, but, you know, you've got like a kind of much more like randomized spread. But was that something you thought about with the opening? I don't know if we, the, the, the opening is sort of almost like in media res mm. in a way. So um, probably not really mm. thought, thought about it. But I think it's, um, uh, I mean, so do you have any idea like how much of uh, the text in a game that players are going to be going to see on any given sort of playthrough, like on average? Yeah, I don't think I've calculated that as <laughs> you know, an interesting calculation. I mean, that, yeah. 80 days is the advantage that the player can kind of take control over making sure they don't see some of the same and, and a lot content, of that, right? Uh, They're like, I'm going to go to a different location, right? right. And you don't necessarily have right. the same. It's not as easy in Dragon Pass right. to... There's some location-based stuff because mm-hmm. you go exploring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if you visit the, a specific clan, you'll see the, the pottery clan yeah. I mean, do you, do you do any design things by, like, keeping track of what players have seen in between playthroughs? Not in terms of one of the games. That mm-hmm. is actually something that happens if we can get the second game done. Mm-hmm. It will know what you did in the first game because it happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Nice. So your clan's major deeds will follow you through the ages. Right. But you mean like if you do two or three playthroughs, play it keeps tracks of like, oh, you saw this this series of the, the only stories we, before, so just don't show it the second playthrough, yeah. even we, though we, they're technically unrelated. We do have the concept of first ever scenes. Okay. Because mm-hmm. we want, if we, there's certain things we wanted to make sure the player understood was part of the world, but it would feel too mechanical if you got it every game, right, right at the, in the first five years or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's one or two things that we explicitly seed if it's what we consider your first game. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is not truly your first game because if you, you know, lose and rage quit, you still might have not gotten to that point and seen it. But at some point it's considered your first game and mm-hmm. we won't force you to see cer- certain things at a certain time. But it doesn't really remember other than that. But still, I think that that, that probably is really impactful. And, and those, those things that are meant to be memorable, the fact that you only see them once, I think is a really powerful way of making the player feel as though it's new. Right. No, some scenes do repeat, mm-hmm. but a lot of them don't. There's a few sort of tentpole scenes. Someone was asking me about that. Um, the again, spoiler, but if you play the game, you'll you'll get it because everyone does. If there's a right. big schism in Six Ages, and it seemed like that was such an important and cool thing to actually have a meaningful religious schism in, in a game that we wanted to have it. So that's, I, it might be possible to avoid it if you. Do really weird choices. But in general, most players... But in general, you're going to see it, but you can play on either side of the schism, and whether you're sort of an instigator or an outsider at the start. I mean, there's lots of variation in it. And that actually is one of the more branching scene things, because it was sort of so tentpole thing, and of course it makes it a QA nightmare. So how many things are there? Uh, because I haven't, I, haven't, I, haven't completed, I haven't completed two games of Six Ages yet, so I'm not sure like what stuff will happen 
again. Like, how much stuff is there? Like the like the asteroid coming down, or like or whatever it is. I guess the uh, parts is going. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's part of listening to the podcast. But like, that, that is that actually, is that one of the things that's going to happen no matter what? That it, yeah, that's a, a, some of the really momentous events do. And how many are there? Would you say like you're gonna? It's not. There is also some pretty significant storylines that do not happen every game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was some, one of the things I would be trying to look when I was analyzing um, player data, play testers. Did they actually get this this story arc? Right. And it's okay that they don't, I think, because then each, every play is different. Or when you when you get it, it can matter a lot too. Yeah. I mean, what kind of pool are we talking about here? Like, is there are there like sort of I don't know, twenty of these major stories? Are there like a hundred? The major stories probably aren't a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to remember the overall mm-hmm. scene count. Uh, King of Dragon Pass, I think, is the marketing copy was way low for a while, and I think it. I finally updated the website. And now I can't remember if it really was like over five hundred scenes or over. Mm-hmm. I think it's over six hundred interactive scenes mm-hmm. in King of Dragon Pass. Um, not all of those are King of Dragon Pass has some sort of tentpole things as well. Yeah. The there's a possibility of a queen arising before you get to do it oh, really? mm-hmm. can happen pretty much every game i think yeah. for something like the asteroid like was that just on a timer or because the, the funny thing no, for me no, there's exactly the, the first it was the very first time i'd ever like gotten over the hump economy wise where i'm like oh this is great i've got more cows and goods and i know what to do with like i'm like i'm on the upstream like i gotta master this game and then like nope you know all gone. In the God's war. so yeah You're i couldn't just a puny ant human yeah so but it was it was coming no matter what it wasn't responding to like me finally. not directly but was it was it responding to my current state to some degree i'm not i don't remember now if it's a hundred percent right we try to make things not like, oh, I've I've crossed some threshold and bam, this you know that that feels yeah doesn't feel like a, a real story if you play it more than once yeah, but we clearly we don't want to hit you super hard before you've gotten anywhere because then you have no chance of recovering right. and that no chance of recovering is not an interesting story mm-hmm. yeah it um it's interesting because you know I come from like a civilization background where the idea of having an event. Where you know you build up, you know you've you've gotten your twelve cities or whatever out and out, and like you've gotten over the hump economy wise, and everything's going great. And the idea of an event that like wipes out half your cities, we just there's just no way. But you're not we would you're not playing a mythic it. game. Well, right, exactly. But well, it's just you know there would never be an earthquake in the well in even even if even middle if of the Mediterranean and even if Atlantis. thematically. Even if them- thematically it made sense, I just don't think we would ever do that because it's like going against the grain of like why people are playing that game. But with, you know, with Six Ages, like I was on board for it because, you know, I could tell this was a game where it's not about player control, right? right. Like, we, is, and both games, we try to imply that you're kind of small. Right. You can't beat nature. And, and a lot of times people like, how come I couldn't like fend off all of the beast people who... Right. Basically, that's nature. That's that's not. That's the world. That's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you hear that a lot? Like, well, what was the solution? What's what was the right path? Why isn't there? You well, that one you dug your own grave, basically. Okay. There's no. <laughs> there's never any one thing you do in in the game that leads you to that. Right. And there's also a warning that you're on that path, and here's your chance of getting off of it. Yeah. So the other thing I, I wanted to mention is like, Dragon Pass Six Ages are kind of like this exception to this generally general purpose game design rule, which is that 
the amount of swinginess and consequence you can have based off of like events and randomness and stuff is generally, I have to do my math in the head, is it proportional or inversely proportional to the length of a game, right? Like if you have a short game, you can have all sorts of weird random stuff in it. But if you have this 80 hour epic, like you have to be fairly careful about like, you know, like just wiping out half of the player's right. stuff. You don't want to right? stop at year 75 and yeah. have it, no chance of... Exactly. Yeah. So like generally speaking, that's how games get designed. Like, you know, when people make a short game, they're like, oh, this is great. I can have all sorts of randomness. Like that's generally like positive. So I just wanted to get your reaction to that because it feels like Dragon Pass is somehow like going against the grain with that. It, it could be. I mean, I think the randomness was more for the texture of, it, of making every story different you play through. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you could have bad scene. You could have a string of bad scenes or bad harvests. Um, back then, I was trying to really model real world harvests, and yeah, you fail about one every seven years, and yeah, but gee, you could roll the seven three times in a row, and yeah, I mean, that did happen to people, mm -hmm. but it's, that's not very fun really well, I, either. I, I don't necessarily mean so much like the mechanics of like making sure like the player is like in a certain range, like food wise or whatever. I mean more like, like thematically and emotionally, like how do you get them on board for this ride where it's like, okay, you're going to be playing a long game and like things might just completely get out of, out of control, right? Like a lot of games are afraid to do that. So it's like, I guess, like, how do you, I, I guess that was sort of related to our keeping everything in world. And you know that you're just some, you don't have any expectation that you're going to conquer the world. Like you sort of do when you start civilization, you kind of know you're special. Right. And we tried, especially in six ages that you're clearly not special. You're the losers. Right. You had to run away from a glacier because right. <laughs> your neighbor's God killed your main God. Right. And they're more powerful than you and they're more colorful than you. Right. Huh. They're cool. They have, they have bronze right. coming out. You know. it's, it's interesting. I just, uh, Meg and I just did this for her, you know, for her career in, in 80 Days. And like, there's actually kind of a parallel between what you just said and kind of like the way you approach 80 Days, where you can have these interesting stories of randomness in 80 Days because um, the character is not special, right? The game is not about the character, you know, so you can have, you know, this potential love interest who then just goes off and does their own thing because, well, the game's not about you, right? Um, and the thing is, I think. For me, I always felt like it was a weird um, notion that we'd all imbibed in the games industry, this idea that like only winning is fun or being the hero or like the all powerful. Like it's actually, I think there's so many more stories in the margin, like the story of yes. running away from the glacier and the story of being like the losers and barely clinging onto life. Like that's a dramatically interesting story. The story of like being Passepartout, a servant, like dragged on this ridiculous quest around the world. Like, that's a fun story because he's just constantly just like, well, I guess we're going around the world. Like, you know. Yeah, as a, as a tangent, at one point, Robin Laws and I were trying to debate what could we do with this game engine? And he was um, proposing you'd be the U.S. Senate uh, simulator. <laughs> but you'd be the, you were the advisors, basically. Mm -hmm. And, like, the senator would show up and be a random event. So that's kind of like fog. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I kind of love that idea of just the senator just being this like horrible random role. Oh, that God, you're gonna... she's yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give her all your cows. <laughs> um, I wonder if the fact that it's a clan simulator, though, instead of it's a weird scale that most games don't really approach. I mean, right. that 
there are actual individuals, but they're your playing pieces. It's not the party you've assembled to go on the quest or anything, and they also don't survive the entire game typically. Okay. But you're, it's also more personal than, you know, a, uh, are they called civilizations in Civ? So, you know, so, one of your starting factions or whatever they yeah. are. You know, those are more impersonal too. So it's yeah. a weird scale. And I don't know if that helps with... Yeah. Yeah, because I not... think there's there's like it's hard like there's a lot of role playing, but then there's also like there's multiple layers of it, right? Like because there's times that you're looking at it at a very individual scale, like with the heroes, and then there's also time and with the advisors as well, who you get to know on a kind of they give a human face to all of these different kind of ways of being <laughs> in the world, mm -hmm. but you're kind of playing at a kind of second order, slightly abstracted position. Yeah, you're the spirit of the clan if you have any role, but yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm the spirit of um, the people in a Civ game. I mean, I am them, sort of. But right. Yeah. They're like, everything's an extension of you. Right? Yeah, it's, it's my people. They do what I, I tell them to. They don't go off and do stuff on their own, which is right. a big factor in King of Dragon Pass. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Right. Like, all of the... In, and in, in some ways, I guess you're also kind of a little bit, like, in the role of the advisor to your people. Like, you're constantly telling them, like, maybe we should do this. And then they kind of have their own ideas now on that. Right. On the other hand, we, we try to be more explicit in Six Ages that they also know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And there's no point in micromanaging at that scale. Right. You know, a game where you direct your villagers to go chop wood that seems kind of wrong to me because why would a villager not go, go chop wood? Go, do your villager stuff. That's not an interesting to me decision, especially not a, a big scale game where you're trying to be mythic. And I mean, I think that's, that's also, it's kind of more easy for people to get their heads around an idea of like, government as a group of people or as a personal thing at the scale you guys are talking about but it requires like delegation already just even even with like a clan <laughs> even at the clan level much less a tribe level mm -hmm. um, which I think is really it's I think that's that's a kind of interesting idea right because I think the way in which we think about how governments work it's, it's either super impersonal or it's like great figures whereas this is a kind of melding of the two in a way right and Maybe just the best figures you could get. Right. Your, your clan council is never what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. It's always a trade-off in its own right. Yeah, I mean, I think de delegation is one of those things that, that happens in King of Dragon Pass in a way that a lot of other games don't do. You, you have to trust someone to... Right, and it's not just auto-play, like, I don't want to be bothered with this combat. Right. Let the game run it for me. Mm -hmm. It's either hardcore delegation, maybe people want more combat choices in King of Dragon Pass and they don't get them. Okay. But yeah, you don't, even in King of Dragon Pass, you're not doing a lot of micromanagement. Mm -hmm. I tried to make that a little bit less in Six Ages and focus more on the story part. And maybe it helps, it probably doesn't really, but to break the idea that I'm playing a 4X game. And right. Mm. Yeah, it sort of has the, some of the features of one. It's the bones that I hang the stories off of. But right. Yeah, maybe not be a good time to talk about like what, you know, can. I mean, I'm interested. What did you differ different with the six ages? But maybe we should stop and like actually talk about the the what is it, 15 or 20 years between the two? Um, about like you know what happened, right? King of Dragon Pass came out, and it kind of had this long, like uh, I would say, right, what, it was, cult well, game hit type thing. Not even that. In this, well, maybe it did. I mean, it was a niche game, and right. publishers. I think one of the big publishers of the day said it would sell no more than 11,000 copies. Right. <laughs> How damning. <laughs> Which was, yeah. you know, in those days, when you put it in a box, it wasn't all that great. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I know we sold more than some games of the day that were had much bigger budgets, but we ended up having to publish it ourselves, which is a great learning experience. But part of what I learned was that in the United States, you pay to be on shelves, yeah. and that the people who do that make most of their money selling that access, not the game itself. Right. So we never got into distribution in the normal system. Yeah, I mean, before digital distribution, I mean, it's hugely difficult for a game to survive out there if it wasn't like one of the big hits. Right. We that was the um, we kind of lucked out, and that was part, I guess, vaguely my plan all along was that we would have a better um, access because we had the tabletop role playing connection, mm -hmm. and it did actually mean that hobby stores that sold like RuneQuest right. would carry the game because really? they had a connection, and so we okay. had a little bit of physical distribution in this country from that. Uh -huh. uh, it turned out that in Finland and the UK, that was really good distribution, mm -hmm. and we ended up as a top 10 game in Finland because oh, wow. Excellent. it was <laughs> the, the same people who were picking it up could get it everywhere, because yep. Finland, you didn't buy shelf space, apparently. Right. Okay. Finland was a very tiny country, and that really didn't, <laughs> didn't help uh, in the overall picture. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I got on the tangent of it was... So, but people had, anyone who got somehow exposed to it, it seemed to like it. Yeah. I mean, you had talked about like what you do, <laughs> you know, what you saw online in the community over like, you know, the years after it came out, like, you know, like what were you, what were you seeing and what was like, um, I think the thing that amazed me most was that people were still playing it, um, years and years later. Right. And that was one of the reasons that when Apple came out with the app store and that you could reach people without any intermediaries yeah. well, other than Apple has to screen it, but you could directly uh, hit people. That was not a factor in mobile gaming before then. You always went through the phone yeah. companies, which is like, how am I going to get through a phone company and get my game on their right. menu? So the fact that people clearly were still enjoying the game, even though the audience had shifted maybe a little bit in that, was that 10 years or so by then, 12 right. years? And phones were now big enough and colorful enough that you could kind of do the game. Right. So. I mean, I think it's also one of the games that's it's been on my phone ever since it came out in that format. <laughs> of course. Like, you know, because again, the, that replayability. Um, Had you been exposed to it before it came out on mobile? Uh, I, I like I'd, I'd read about it. I'd heard about because, you know, of course, I was part of like the IF community, but I hadn't actually like, I, you know, I knew lots of people that had made games that were inspired by that, but I had never played it before. So it was one of those things that because, again, like I also at a lot of that time I was in Bangalore in India and like there's no. <laughs> I don't think you were buying shelf space in India. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was a long period of time where it really felt like, I don't know, the, that period of time where, like, if you wanted some out-of-print Velvet Underground album, you'd have to order it from England or something like that. Like, there was a period of time like, when I was aware, like, the game was out there, but there was basically no way to buy it. And, like, maybe you'd find something on eBay or whatever, but, like, there were lots of people who talked about it, and it kind of had this, yeah. like, mythic, mythic quality because they're like, there's nothing out, nothing else out here like yeah. it. I had actually tried to um, sort of like, remaster create the right word for that, but I, the original game required a CD to be in the drive as its very limited copy protection. Right. It's 1999. Yep. I figured a publisher would want copy protection. So it didn't have to be very much, but you can't really replicate a C drive and loading data off, not, not the CD, whatever the heck the CD drive is called in yep. Windows of the day. Um, but 
couldn't do that from the original. We couldn't remaster it. And I, so it couldn't turn into a download okay. for PCs. I think I had tried that a year or two before and ended up on iPhone. Okay. Um, I think we really lucked out that it's a great format for mobile play because all of the things I was doing in terms of sort little snippets of story mm-hmm. and the fact that your advisors remind you of what choices you've made before and that the saga writes down the things you've made before so you can pick it up again and it autosaves. Mm-hmm. So all of these things mean you can actually play it on the train and stop and you you don't lose anything in the experience, really. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was kind of just a, a, a fluke of luck. It's pre-adapted to mobile. You know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I, I think actually, it's it, it makes sense to me because it comes. You know, you you have that tabletop kind of aesthetic to it, and this idea of that things play out over multiple sessions. Like you don't have to do it all in one go. And I think a lot of that is very relevant to mobile game design. Actually, that, that's a good point. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, it was intended to be a well, Greg Stafford's um, Pendragon campaign was clearly not played in one session of 75 right. years. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, it contains within it an idea that humans might have to remember things from one session. Oh, the game needs to aid you in, in helping you remember what's important in the game states and stuff like that. Yeah, some of that mostly was my frustration in games where you had to take notes on paper. <laughs> I've got a computer, guys. Uh, computers are real good at this stuff. Right. Right, like outsource the stuff that computers are really good at to the computers and, like, also the rest of it, which I think is a really good piece of advice. Yeah. So during during this period between like when it first came out and the mobile came out, like were you monitoring like like where were where where would you like get a sense of what people were feeling about the game and like uh, there's there's some you... online communities and I think people were doing um like mailing lists in the day. There's okay. some fans who dedicated just just Dragon Pass basically or like uh, or in... I'm trying to remember that. I know someone People were doing dedicated fan sites for mm-hmm. for tracking stuff. I think it was largely the uh, there's Glorantha fandom mm-hmm. for the setting, and that's probably the, it was part the part intersection. Of yeah, sure. Okay. But mostly, I was trying to make a living, and it turned out not to be in games for for most of that time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the iPhone thing was sort of a side project. Right. And like did a, you feel confident about that because you would see you know you could see people were still talking about the game. So like it's worth it's worth going into it again. And there's it's certainly a clamor for how come it's not downloadable. Like, yeah, yeah. And all, all kinds of false rumors about I lost the source. And... Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so then once you got the new you know once you got the new uh, port out, I guess um, what did you want to accomplish with Six Ages? Like you know, presumably you had a lot of time to think about it. You 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 know you kind of looked at a lot of feedback. Probably you know, way more people played it than before it came out. So what was... Oh, yeah, it was much, well, lots more. On, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've hit 200,000 copies. Mm-hmm. So the 11,000... <laughs> yeah. was a little low. <laughs> a little bit off. I mean, yeah, it also yeah. took many more years to get sure. there than... Yeah. It's the long tail. Most, most games never sell, never have even a chance to sell that long, right? Like, right. That's kind of crazy. So it's, it's a weird... Um, really, it, I wanted to make a sequel sort of from the start. Right. And... I didn't know what it was going to be because I didn't want to just do the same exact thing over again. Mm-hmm. It just didn't feel like it would do it justice. Right. I, I think a lot of people probably expected that. Mm-hmm. Either that or they were um, like so hardcore Glorantha fans. It's like, make the same game, only we get to play the trolls. Right, sure. I think that would be a hard sell for most people. I mean, we already get you in an alien mindset where you can't 
be nice necessarily because you have to be nice, what, do what your ancestors did and they weren't necessarily nice. Um, so it just, it actually took me years and years to come up with what the proper sequel could be that would sort of right. feel right and still tie into um, drawing out the, the mythological setting. Right. I mean, also, I guess what I'm getting at is like when you, if, you know, over the years, you probably had a lot of time to reflect on what you did right and wrong with Dragon Pass. So yeah. like, like what were your like two or three things that you're like, okay, if we get a chance to do it again, I want to like do this stuff better. I want to fix this thing or like, well, some of it's just the boring technical stuff of sure. it was really hard to make updates to King of Dragon Pass and sure. add new content. Right. We did add a lot of new content for the iOS version, but right. the file format was terrible for that. Right. And you couldn't okay. add treasures. And, oh, was, yeah. But game design wise, was there any change in philosophy to like how the game you know, was made or how it, you know, it would feel. We did want to, the, um, that whole uh, concern system came out of the fact we really wanted it to be much more mobile friendly, mm -hmm. even though it was mobile friendly anyway, but we wanted to make sure that the interface would truly work and not constrain you on a, a small screen right. to make things more visible. And, and visibility was, again, to make it not necessarily transparent, but explicable why things succeed or fail and whether things are hard or not really had to be drawn out more um, strongly by the advice yeah but it was sort of most of it worked fairly well as a game i mean we the hero quests i wanted to make them feel to the player maybe less random right partly we did that from uh different the fact that they're not truly hero quests because you're actually living in the god time. Mm -hmm. If you look back at it from the King of Dragon Pass era, right. you're like, even before your ancestors practically, right. the gods are still walking the earth. Are you, are you sort of explicitly attempting to kind of um, open it up to an, a, like not just the audience of people that played King of Dragon Pass, but a kind of, you know, just the new mobile audience that's out there? Sure, both as a, you know, I'd like to make some money off of it, but also just... I, it's always nice to have people experience the art. And was there was there anything specific that you, that you did in this that to to kind of I don't know like uh, to 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 give people like a primer on the lore or to to make it more clear to them that, and not just to kind of, the kind of player that was already so one there. of the things that worked very poorly in King of Dragon Pass was the tutorial, mm -hmm. partly because we originally had the tutorial in the original was in the, the printed manual that came with the game. Okay. <laughs> and that was nice, but it was still, even then it was kind of a very fragile experience. And so we decided to do these sort of um, contextual guides that we ended up calling them. I think I called it tutorial, but I brought in a play tester who'd never played, a QA person actually, who'd never played King of Dragon Pass. And he decided these are annoying and he turned them off and he ended up horribly confused about how the game worked. Mm. And that was actually really good because I could hear exactly why he was confused and figure out stuff to do. But so the tutorial and onboarding is hopefully much stronger in Six Ages than it was in King of Dragon Pass. Well, what exactly is there? Is there some? Is there one thing that like stands out to you? Is something that you had to fix or tweak, or that was confusing to somebody who hasn't come from King of Dragon Pass? Think the uh, the. The thing he got most confused about was the, the turn-based nature, that it's a much chunkier system mm -hmm. in a way than most turn-based strategy games. Mm -hmm. They have turns, but turns don't usually take four weeks. Right. Yeah. And 
what took time and what didn't. There's actually a little, there's a few things in King of Dragon Pass that look like any other decision, but they didn't take time. Oh, okay. Because they were, they didn't feel like it. I don't know, maybe it's probably a mistake in its design. So you're more consistent this time but around. Things are more consistent there so that we could explain it more consistently. Just sort of, we have the dual tutorial system now that we try to show you. We always try to show you the highlights, but mm-hmm. you, by playing through a year, you sort of are playing more detail than you needed to know. It's a quick overview. And so the tutorial is technically even more highly restricted now. Right. <laughs> but it also can't get off the rails. And it, it still has some choices that sort of give you a feeling of your choices matter. Yeah. Your ancestor choice. We, but you went through the entire clan questionnaire in King of Dragon Pass, and then we made the mistake of uh, we sort of intentionally showed you bad decisions so that you'd see consequences. And at the end of the tor- tutorial, it was like, okay, now you can keep playing. We made you make bad decisions, so this is kind of <laughs> stupid. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, that that aspect got better. Yeah. 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 Um, are there any? I was just yeah. chance. Is there any chance, questions you wanted to ask before you have to run off? Or I mean, hmm, I think we kind of covered lots of it. I'm, I guess I'm um, also. So I should admit I haven't played Six Ages yet. It's on my phone, but every time I'm about to play it, I just go back to playing King of Dragon Pass. <laughs> so, um, which it's I think a is a compliment, guy. you know. Um, but I'm so I, I like, and I've avoided reading much about six ages because i want to play it there are spoilers yeah i really don't want spoilers because i i like the opaqueness of it so so tell tell me a little and i think there might be people who who are huge fans of king of dragon pass and haven't played six ages so tell me a little bit about what's different about it like why pick um you know and you you talked a little bit about picking a different setting or aspect of glorantha yeah it it is maybe more approachable in that you know both from the onboarding Mm -hmm. it's also and some people think this is really terrible, but it's actually designed to be a shorter playthrough. And I know some people have said this is really great because then I can play through to an ending more often. Right. <laughs> so that's you know sort of a, a two-edged sword. How long is the other playthroughs? It, six ages. I can't remember the hour time. Mm-hmm. Well, how many I never years? Got that but it's generally we were aiming for something that was close to the short game of King of Dragon okay. Pass, okay. Right. which is that you probably can't win before 30 game years mm-hmm. but it isn't going to drag on forever past that you'll come to some kind of definite conclusion so how would you describe if, if so so it's if, maybe a more intense experience in that sense <laughs> it's more tuned to have some of the crazy swings not happen including the death spiral we you still can lose but there's not it's harder to get into a death spiral yeah just the way the um the economy is designed so that you can get it to the point where it's probably runnable and mm-hmm. you're given, I think, better guidance as to how to do it. And so we talked a little bit about how King of Dragon Pass is about making the player feel small in this sort of cosmic sense or, and, and that nature was coming yeah. to get you. Like, is, is, what, is, what is that? What is that theme for um, six ages? Probably even smaller. It's really, <laughs> a, I think... I don't know if it came, one of my original ideas was that it would be a a lot of exploration because the world is so new and the map is actually, I think, four times, four times must be the area. It's a much bigger map to explore. So the, and it's all new. In King of Dragon Pass, you're revisiting land that your ancestors had known so you can see where all the rivers were. Mm -hmm. 
you don't know that in six ages. So there hopefully is a little bit more sense of a, a new world and we're still making it and the gods may still show up and say howdy or, or worse. I mean, were you, were you thinking explicitly, because the minute you say exploring a new world, it makes me think like manifest destiny and, you know, extensively, you know, that... Was, was there a way in which you're explicitly pulling away from that kind I of... I think we're more explicit that you are... It's it's not just um, the previous... Everyone's a previous inhabitant in both games, mm-hmm. but here you are faced with the Storm people, who are your people in King of Dragon Pass, mm-hmm. effectively. <laughs> um, so you're sort of looking at it from the outside, mm-hmm. but they're explicitly much more powerful than you because they're the... There's, their god is the one that's winning the god's war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think is actually an interesting way to look at indigenousness in a sense. Like a lot of games about exploration and colonialism, like you are, you are the high-tech invaders displacing other people. So that, that's already interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, we're not, you're not native either here. Yeah. But so you're sort of, everyone's a migrant here. Civilization is ruined. <laughs> Thanks to the that damn meddling god. <laughs> um. And I guess I'd also love to know a little bit about how, like, wh- you know, you talked a little bit about Norse mythology, and I can definitely see that there's there's some influence there, but were you also thinking of, like, the pantheons of, like, Greek and Roman gods or Indian gods or, like, just in a more sort of pagan fashion? Yeah, I mean, it's all... Um... That would be a question for Greg Stafford if he were still alive, but, <laughs> yeah. I mean... The Norse gods are were one of many elements. Um, I think the uh, Indian pantheon comes apart in a different part of Glorantha or a different time period of Glorantha. You see that in age four or five mm-hmm. or something. Um, I did try to add spirits to the mix mm-hmm. as sort of you're um, still figuring out the god thing and you may have to deal with spirits who are individually less powerful, but maybe they're more accessible to you. Mm-hmm. And so is that something that you added into the setting? It's all extrapolated from, from the, the setting. setting. Okay. I mean, the whole... We have some... Spe- we have to, we've always had to fill in a lot of specifics. Right. I mean, oddly enough, Greg Stafford had never named the cow goddess when he did King of Dragon Pass. Oh, really? So you had to come up <laughs> so with So I had to get him to give us a name. Give us a name, right? Oh, see, so that's interesting. So you get to have him invent that. Like, is there anything that you had to invent and that, like, Glorantha fandom just went, like, what the hell are you even doing? I was kind of amazed that Glorantha fandom bought into everything we did because wow. they've been pretty fractious about little... <laughs> It's almost like Talmudic scholars sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's fandom. It's like the worst excesses of academia, but for even less gain. Right. So everyone is much more vicious. <laughs> but, but surprisingly, we never had that. And yeah. We wanted to have playable hero quests in King of Dragon Pass, and Greg Stafford had never really... He'd written sort of these generic myth cycles, but he'd never written down a lot of very specific myths. Mm. So most of the playable myths in King of Dragon Pass were written by Robin Laws for King of Dragon Pass. Mm-hmm. And then they were rolled back into later stuff because Greg liked them enough. And we did a little bit of that also in um, Six Ages. I mean, partly because we're trying to f- cherry-pick the myths that would be relevant to your people that you could use to run a clan as opposed to deal with this you know, broad stroke of Glorantha history that Greg was interested in. You know, how the world was made is not, that's an important myth, but it's not 
what you do to get more cows. <laughs> right, absolutely. All right, I think that might be. I think I'm. Yeah, I I should I should probably run. I'm afraid, but like, this is this is really wonderful. Thank <laughs> yeah, you so much. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad I got to and hear about all of this. But like, I'm sure apart from this podcast, I think uh, like. King of Dragon Pass is like so very directly like an inspiration for like everything we're doing with eighty days and like with John and like the replayability and so much of the stuff that you're talking you you say I think just kind of like it I was like oh my god okay no I think we actually I don't know whether I explicitly understood that about it but I was like that's kind of similar to what we're doing in eighty days and I think because we're going for the same vibe so thank you very much for for making it like and it remains it remains one of my my favorite games. I can talk about it forever. So thank you. Thanks. Cool. Excellent. All right. I'm going to run. All right. Like, excellent. I will um, see you around. Yeah, I'll see you around, Meg. Thanks for, thanks for sitting in. It was yeah, great. My pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good too. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask though, I want to make sure Meg had time to talk before she went. So. I don't know if you wanted my other full history of game stuff in the middle, which uh, yeah. was pretty minimal, but. Yeah, we can talk about that too. One, one thing I want to ask though, is like, you know, kind of looking back across both games, like what do you think makes a good event? That's actually can be can be tricky because it has to be something that has decisions that there's no right path, right, and hopefully can illustrate something about the world at the mm. same time to be a Glorantan event, right, and work at the clan level in some fact some way that it, not necessarily your own clan but the relationships with other clans, mm-hmm. and th- I. And maybe having some visible connection to things. Right. That inspirational thing in castles. I was never sure that what you decided made any difference at all if it was pure color. Yeah, I vaguely remember that game had events, and I don't remember what they what the purpose was necessarily. Um, I mean, color is fine. But yep, yep. You, um, you need something that's more than pure color to... Since I was trying to make the entire game based on events. Right. Yeah, um, I mean that's a, that's a heavy load to like make have events be such a big part of the game. You and know? they can't be too long either, right? Because you're, you know, even if you're playing on a desktop, you don't really want to do a lot of scrolling of text, right? And it can be hard to. I mean, that's just some of it's just editing, but yeah, you can't have a lot of sort of backstory to an, an event, right? And when you're doing you're doing events that like have these characters, so you have events with characters that are like play out over five, ten years or whatever, or longer in or some long, cases. Or longer. There's a sequence in King of Dragon Pass that could almost take the entire game. Right. Um, are those characters that you kind of like build on the fly, or like when the events happen, you kind of look around for characters who might be you both can fit into those slots? The the one I just mentioned is is um. Because we want it to be able to happen over many years, you don't want to have it be one of the characters that you decided to send off and they died exploring. Right. So the whole storyline comes crashing to a halt. Okay. So some of the longer ones are, um, you can't really call them non-player characters, but right. they are, they're, not, char- they're not leaders. Right. We make the distinction of leaders, which are the ones you can choose to be your counsel or to choose to send off adventuring. Right. Uh, but many of the things do involve the leaders. Right. And sometimes those are, we coined the term featured characters. Right. The, I'd mentioned earlier about Calor the Hero, who's clearly a featured character. Mm-hmm. 
and probably everyone probably picks her to be on their clan council because clearly she's special and right. we don't necessarily know she gives terrible advice. Right. Sure. She's still useful on the clan council because she'll go do the things that you need her to do as one of your official representatives. Um, but she has her own, um, some of her own stories show up in the game and there's some stories for featured characters in Six Ages as well because those are the ones you are going to get to know the most. Right. And some of their um, history and, and personality would help drive some of those scenes and make them more logical. Right. But a lot of times it's, we'll, we'll drop in a character. Um, the King of Dragon Pass has the uh, um, plant-hating character. Okay. Right. And yeah, he's a big fan. And um, I guess the other thing of, of monitoring stuff turned out to be um, the something awful let's play stuff. Okay. Where someone did a, you know, basically did a, an entire King of Dragon Pass game and had uh, audience input. Okay. What, what do we do now? And right. Turned into like a. But they had they lover. randomly got the uh, plant hating character and he mm. turned out to be beloved of fans because he's kind of wacky. Right. Sure. And he has, there's a scene for that, but it's not the same character every time. Okay. Right? The, it, the a trait gets attached. Traits to it. are. There's a lot of procedural generation of the characters to make it more replayable so that you would want to learn who they are. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I did think about that trade-off about, like, you need characters that are important, but you can't let the player have complete control over them because that messes with the events and so on. So, did I send you my whole talk yet? Uh, <laughs> one yeah. of my slides is talking about these traits and the fact that yeah. having the, the plant-hating guy go off and... and, and you know, mess with, get the clan into a big trouble. We don't want to do that until you know who he is. Right. So he has to be your advisor for at least probably two or three years. That scene has a different requirement, but right. we're not going to spring this stuff on you. Sure, sure. Did you, so um, these kind of long form let's plays um, that you would kind of see pop up on the forums, like, is there stuff you, you learned from them that was like surprising or like, you know, the way people played the game? you know, afterward. I mean, beyond, like, they broke the game economically, but or, you know, whatever, but I mean more like just the way they approach things or the way they, they made assumptions about the game. Or Yeah, it was kind of a mix of people, because most of the audience were, um, they were, the person running it was familiar with the game and, and bought into the I'm role-playing mindset. And right. The bystanders from a forum may not have had that but I, I guess the fact that how, how strongly they were picking up on the personalities. Okay. And that's one reason we have sort of more featured characters in, mm -hmm. well, I'll, in not only the, uh, the very last big content update of King of Dragon Pass, where I introduced a new featured character in, in her own storyline, but Six Ages, we tried to make more featured characters. Because mm -hmm. people clearly like them and they're, People got attached to them. They get attached to them, and that they, they, they read in things to the character that aren't necessarily there. Like is that type of thing, or oh, now I get to say apophenia. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> my wife keeps giving me a hard time because she doesn't. I, I I learned that word finally about how people perceive patterns. Yes, that may or may not exist in right. things, and the whole emergent narrative of these games is stronger because some of it is intentional, but some of it isn't, and it. But we also are sort of in a structure where it should make sense. Right. So you're not necessarily wrong in finding a pattern. Right. Can you think of a good example or 
like uh, you know type of the, the, just the consistent type of thing you've seen in that in that vein. I think you get, just you get emergent stories when like you attack somebody and then they something happens as a result of it and right. It, it's quite likely totally random. It may right. still be, but it may be gated on the fact that they have a low attitude and they have a low attitude because you attack them. Right. I mean, theoretically, that's the simulation working. Right. right? It's just not it's, explicit. It's not, ex and sometimes it is explicit. We actually do a little bit more. Um, I think we did a tiny bit in in King of Dragon Pass and in Six Ages. There's a lot more. Um, we're gonna get you. Right. And it's just we kind of tell you that they're gonna get you. Yeah. And then when they do raid, they tell you why they raided <laughs> right. to try to make it really clear. Yeah. Uh, so that one's not emergent behavior per se, other than you made it happen by a decision you took. Right. Yeah. Did you add, do you feel like, um, it seems, so it seems like your approach to events was pretty loose in the sense that like you just made all these events and they have like various triggers or like parameters yeah, and you just kind of like... You kind of really take have faith that like it's yes. just going to kind of fall to, out to a large degree. Okay, where um, where did that break down? Like, were there places you had to kind of fudge things to? There's a little bit of um, once you have hundreds of them and you can actually play the game. I started noticing that um, things were missing, mm -hmm. and what do you mean? What in, in six ages in particular? I, I don't know if I remember what was missing in, in King of Dragon Pass. Um, so King of Dragon Pass, it's pretty obvious what the goal of the game is because yes. the name tells you the goal. Right. And Six Ages, the actual goal is really a plot twist. Yeah. And I can't tell you the goal at the start. At least I don't think I can because sure. that would break the immersion. I yeah. mean, maybe... I've, I've, had, I've suffered from that a little bit in Six Ages where I'm like, well, the game's fun and I'm going forward, but I'm not really sure why... And, I'm playing at this point. Know, that could be a big design flaw too. And right. I'm, it, that's tricky. But I having mean, painted myself into that corner, I tried to paint myself out a little bit. And mm -hmm. there's um, a bunch of scenes I wrote to try to guide you to the well, partly to explain that. Yeah, you kind of have to wait till things are obvious, and right. they will be obvious. And trust us on that. Right. Um, uh, like, can you give me an example of like you know like th this thing is going somewhere? So. Trying to remember what the scene actually. Oh, the one of them was um, there. Anytime the uh, the Ram people interact with you, uh -huh. there's a chance that there's a follow up scene where one of your neighbors comes and, God damn those Rams, they're really yeah. annoying. And that I want to tell you that, yeah, you actually are small and you may be not the indigenous people, but you're the you're not likely to be able to conquer these these powerful neighbors right. who are so powerful they can actually cross the river whenever they want to because they have flying magic and you have to right. come up with a way to cross the river with magic. So, like, you know, let the player know there is something coming. But it was like, yeah, let, let you know that these guys are a powerful force and it's not just they're another people. So I think I, there's a, um, a number of, of scenes that the, there's a context so that when the, the neighbor comes and complains that it knows the last one, and that's what they're specifically complaining about. But it's right. generic enough to work for all of them. And I think that's one... I can't remember if that's one that is one of those that we force to happen if it hasn't happened randomly. Okay. Yeah, because I was asking about like when you have to fudge it. A yeah, bit. that one might be. Right. But it may just be that the more chances, the greater the odds. And Yeah. 
But so okay. out, outside of like the big tent poles that like you're going to make sure people see, like you just, you just kind of just let it rip. But in general, the idea is to have enough uh, stuff in there that, yeah, it can rip. And by having things um, either, sometimes they're still timed that, it, that something makes no sense until you've been ex exposed. Well, like there's no point in having anything talking about all the other factors of the RAM people until you have your first encounter with them. Right. So that's a big gate. And that first encounter has to happen so that you can get all the rest of it. But mostly we sort of rely on the logic of the constraints on the scene so that we don't have someone try to sell you something when you're totally broke. Right. And no one's going to ask you to go raiding when it's not raiding season. Yep. Do you have, you have issues when you're kind of designing the events that like if you make the parameters too specific... You have a, you know, like you, you maybe you have 600 events, but there is these 50 events that like almost functionally never show up. I think that has happened. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always surprised how rare it is to have a completely random scene with no constraints at all. Mm -hmm. They do exist, but then usually QA gets at it and says, um, you know, if you happen to be feuding with all your neighbors, the scene doesn't work. Right. And it's okay. In, in practice, that never happens, but we still need to put the constraint on the scene so it's no, no longer fully random. Right. Um, but yeah, some of them, some of them have always been rare, and that certainly is also the case in King of Dragon Pass. That it has sort of the same, same design issues. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, some of the ones that go down along storyline are very rare in King of Dragon Pass too. Yeah. I mean, do you metrics this out? Like, do you, with sex ages, did you have like kind of like a thing where you can look at like which type of events people see a lot, which people see less, and like you've adjusted or? I didn't do, I didn't get to that granularity. Um, I've historically been terribly bad with metrics. Mm -hmm. In a previous job, I learned about metrics. Oh, we should do this. This is great. Yeah. And we put in metrics and. Ended up not actually looking at the metrics until we chipped the game in one case, <laughs> the game house. Right. And that was kind of annoying. Sure. Um, well, but I mean, kind of the whole point of metrics is to look at the game, what's going on after you ship, right? Like, well, um, we, we had a diff that was basically a shrink wrap model, though. So, yeah, you, we, you did. There's I wanted, you could do. We wanted to use it in playtesting. I see. And I wanted to, I think what you're asking here is, did I do this in playtesting? Right. Which I should have done. And I did many things, and I think I was more looking for, um, the tent poles, uh -huh. and I don't think I had enough playtesters to have done it with valid data right. also because with 400 or 500 scenes, any one playthrough isn't going to get them all anyway. Yeah. So what have you done with metrics? Because I, I know, I think I've read, seen some posts of yours where you, you talk about the metrics you have looked at for Six Ages. I mean, this was kind of something new that wasn't available to you when you were design, designing Dragon Pass. So right. like... I, I, I think I've always looked at um, achievements in a way because okay. those are easily metricable. Right. Yeah. And in King of Dragon Pass, I added achievements for some of the big story and mm -hmm. for the big um, fun failures. Right. So at least if you're going to be wiped out, you get an achievement for it. Or for the things that um, that players hate when it happens. Right. You can get an achievement for that even if it's not being wiped out. Um, so you might look at the percentage of players that have hit each achievement. I also want to know, like, how often do people win? Sure, yeah. And as a side note, one of the things I was always interested in was how many people are playing while blind. Oh, really? Okay. Both of the games have complete support under iOS for black blind players. Okay. What does and, black blind mean? Um, 
it's a term I hadn't run into until recently, but some many people have some sight, yes. but are legally blind. Right, sure. Okay. I mean, actually, if you're playing with most um, VR headsets, you'd be legally blind. You wouldn't have a driver's license if you could only see out of that. Sure. But right. um, but you're not blind in the sense that many people think of it. Right. But if you have if you have no vision at birth, you can still play our games. Okay. And I was curious to know, well, I put in this work, and uh-huh. did it actually matter? And yeah, yeah, it was surprisingly... What's the percentage? I think it was, um, it was at least 5%. That's pretty good. I mean, there are probably other people who are still using that feature who may not be blind. I mean, there's like, one of the things accessibility people talk a lot about is like if you provide various things like you know, yeah, situational. Uh, audio, uh, uh, they actually have a term for it. Uh, it's the curb cuts. Um, that when they added, lowered the curb so like wheelchairs can go up on sidewalks it was also great for everybody else too right or someone who happens to have a baby for a little while right you know or a bike or they're pulling luggage or whatever so like all of these things you for accessibility like it spills over it makes the game better for everyone even if they don't necessarily have that specific need um so that's neat that you did that that was that was a metric of of great interest but also just like could people finish the game and that was something that king of dragon pass a lot of people never finished it like what percentage of people get to the end well, I'm, I mean, it doesn't have to be exact. I, I'm just like, is it a quarter? Is it 10%? Is it I like... I can't... I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but it was... It's. It shocked me how small it was. Sure. And there's a couple possible reasons for that. And yeah. One is it's just it takes a long time. Yeah. And I, two is it's probably really hard. And yeah. maybe three is it's really random. And even if you're good, it's yeah. you get kicked. Now, does get to the end mean to win or just to get to the, the end? To, to win. I mean, you're intended to actually become King of Dragon Pass. Right, right? sure. And um, there's plenty of ways to lose. Is it, so is that m- number much better for Six Ages? I, I think so. But it's it, shorter. The intent was that it would be higher. Right, sure. <laughs> always, um, I mean, this is, you'll hear this, everyone we, who makes a game that has an end, they'll always be like, I'm shocked how few people get to the end, right? Like, <laughs> it's just one of those things about game development. Um, and I'm yeah, and I'm also you know I'm clearly bad at being a publisher because I don't know all my metrics. Sure, right. Yeah, it's okay. I'm just curious, like once what it, how it, if it changed anything for you about development, being able to actually see, and it, this would have been mostly post release, you know, going back and like updating the. Game I don't. Right? Yeah, I, I've been less worried about post release because mm-hmm. sort of the game is out there, and I know we're not in the shrink wrap world yep. that we used to be, but. Pretty much all I've, all of my career has been doing shrink-wrap software, even right. if it's digitally delivered. Yeah. Um, the world of GameHouse was, it was all, it was just as updatable, but our, we kind of, that was another big advantage of the App Store was that people could find out about updates. Sure. Yeah. In the um, 2000s, there was no, we could do updates all we wanted, but no one would know about them. Sure. We so we, we kind of assumed that you what's, bought the game and that the was, point? Yeah. you never download it again. Yep, yep, yep. So it was effectively shrink-wrap software. You had to get it right to yep. start with. Um, and we have no, you know, there's no financial reason to keep updating the game in one, you know, the, the crude sense of buy new content. Yeah. Okay. So what's the... I, mean, I like to update the games and keep them, you know, I there is actually a content update coming that... I realized I forgot a scene that should have been there. And oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I was thinking, well, while I was writing the second Six Ages game, I, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, so just, did... I'll just duplicate this and change it for the first game and roll it back in because it needed to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, uh, what is the uh, future for, for Six Ages? What's your, what's your plan? 
So the, probably the next thing that will happen is it shows up on Steam and, and probably GOG. Mm-hmm. I don't know about other stores. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have a Windows and Mac version, and that will hopefully get more players in. Yep. I know it would get more media in. Sure. Definitely. People don't cover mobile games necessarily. Yeah. Treated as this weird, horrible off. Well, I found it. I find interesting choice that you stuck with mobile first for six ages. It seems like you could have gone Steam first, but then I don't know how popular Dragon Pass was on Steam. And like, it's 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 hard to judge from the actual numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, iOS has been the most profitable for us, really. For all, but there's there's many reasons you could explain that. Sure. I mean, if only because it was on iOS longer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, PC first can be nice because you often can go with a higher price point and like it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's maybe a more forgiving audience. I don't know. Depends on the game. But like um, mobile mobile just can be a tough market in a lot of different ways. Um, so. also, it may also be my own weirdness that I find myself playing games a lot more on an iPad on right. a couch. Sure. Uh, when... Um, I guess 80 Days was mobile first, and that's how I played it. Yeah. But also, um, uh, Sunless Skies. Yeah. No, not, not that one. Sunless Seas. Sunless Seas came yep. out, and I was a Kickstarter backer, and yep. I got it on my back, and I never really played it much on the Mac. And then they finally brought it to iPad, and I played it a lot because I could sit on my couch and yep. play it. And it was well, if cool. you're thinking about the reading aspect of it, and like almost viewing it as, as a replacement for a book. Right, and like yes, you happen to hold an iPad the same way you hold a book, and there happens to be an awful lot of reading in these yep. games. And it seemed like it could be a, a plausible. And, and personally, I've had such bad luck with Unity that I didn't right. want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there also seemed to be options for bringing iOS games to uh, desktop very quickly, all of which no longer exist. But you're so you're also uh, you're also writing new chapters, right, for Six Ages. And so yes, like, this, after the the game comes to more platforms, I am taking the the gamble that we can continue the story. Right. And so, at least the second chapter should should be finished. And my wife keeps telling me, "Well, you got to do the third because it's not going to be a cliffhanger. <laughs> every story is every game is supposed to stand alone." Right. How many? I mean, are there? Is there like a how how far could it go if you're able to keep doing them? In theory, the, I mean, the number six was right, sure. <laughs> was chosen because I could easily do six games in yeah. different stages of uh, crises in Glorantan history. Right. And I don't know if that'll actually happen because right. they take a long time to make. <laughs> sure. And are the chapters going to pick up various? It's going to be related to previous playthroughs that you have, or are they going to be separate? Well, they have to they have to be standalone, but right. they also have to be related. So. We have uh, certain things that we are bringing forwards. So you'll link them to a so specific they, save so it'll be or a playthrough. Yes, you'll you'll if you have a saved game in the first from the first chapter, you will load that and continue. Right. Two hundred ish years later. Right. Okay. And it's not. Are you worried about the the like explosion of like opt, you know different places people could end up with like. Now we have the a luxury of you know two hundred years kind of levels things out sure. a bit. Everyone's everyone's dead. Who was everyone's alive. De- everyone's dead. Who was there? Yeah. And some of your enemies are, are. If we want them to be gone, they're gone. Yeah. You only need to. If they weren't your enemies before, they came to power. That right. sort of thing. You only need to carry forward a few things. And, yeah. But we we are trying to carry through some decisions that you made. And right. 
the uh, like the very last thing you do in winning six ages is definitely something that carries forward. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so I don't have a lot of time, but I did kind of maybe want to hear a little bit about your time at Shenandoah, um, and because uh, yeah. I thought that was a pretty unique company, and you guys made some really cool games. That was sort of uh, my dream job in a lot of ways because mm -hmm. they were iPad focused, which yep. at the time really seemed like this was a, a great platform for doing war games yep. and of a sort that you couldn't really do anywhere else, yep. which was, um, it was actually uh, the fact that you could design a game that played well over Game Center with um, passing turns back and forth. It was it was a, a really great game design for that that you'd make some meaningful stuff yep. and then the other player would do meaningful stuff. Yep. And as a tabletop designer, you don't design like that because you have board players while they wait for the other yep. player. And it was very interesting when um, Eric Lee Smith was trying to adapt his game mm -hmm. that we never quite got to publish. Right. Uh, he he of course came from the board game design background and he kept doing stuff where you'd have an interrupt yes which you totally you do in do. a game yeah, yeah. but you can't interrupt yeah. in a in a really remote turn-based game because you have to pass the chance to interrupt and yeah. hours later you get oh i didn't interrupt go ahead yeah that's why hearthstone dropped all that stuff when they adapted magic for digital you know they're like we yeah, can't it's... have interrupts we have to be native to the digital platform um yeah, it's a, it's a very good insight. And, um, you know, board games are just not, you know, think of them that way. And often, again, yeah, like you said, they, they go the opposite path, right? And where you want le lengthy, chunky turns if you have an asynchronous board game, uh, if you have an asynchronous digital board game. <laughs> yeah, they can, be, they can be as lengthy as you as want. You want. Yeah, probably the longer the better, frankly. Um, like Ticket to Ride is a great example of like a great board game that's a, a terrible digital game because every turn in Ticket Ride, you do what thing? You do what? You like draw two cards. And like that's your turn, right? It's over, right? I think I only played <laughs> against the AI, so yeah. I mean, you play but against yeah. the AI is fine, but if you're trying to play it, you know, asynchronously, like you know, your the game's going to be whatever a hundred turns, and each turn is just some small thing. So yeah, I thought I thought that was a huge strength of of your guys's game. Yeah, for yeah sure. the crisis and command system mm -hmm. was, was actually really tuned for the platform, and that's. You know, like the fact that King of Dragon Past accidentally was tuned for the platform with its yep. discrete design. There they were doing it intentionally, and I, I thought they managed to pull it off. Yep. It had the interesting thing of, like, you kind of... Um, one of the interesting things about war games is that, functionally speaking, a lot of war games, even if you've played it a number of times, you still probably maybe play it, like, five times or whatever, right? You know, like a, a real in-the-box war game, right? But if you have a digital, like, you might have people, someone, like, play a hundred versions. You know, play yeah, it a hundred times. So you get very into, like, okay, on turn one, these are basically the two viable choices you might make. And, um, and then it's kind of like you learn about chaos theory. Like, okay, you, you start with really maybe only a couple viable choices, but from there on, it can, like, branch out into right. all these crazy places. Yeah, and Battle of the Bulge was something that it was also even if it has meaningful turns, it was fast enough that I could often play it on the subway. Once I knew the game, of course, it was and I knew those first opening moves, which they weren't quite a book, but it was pretty close. Yeah, you'd make one of one or two things, and then then chaos would happen because you'd get good die rolls, or the opponent would react one of his multiple openings, and yeah, 
But it really, yeah, it was a great mobile game, I thought. Yeah. I was always curious, like, what it would have been like to do a game that had kind of that format, you know, like the, um, you know, the way the way you move and, you know, the combat, and whatever, if you could somehow put it in a somewhat random scenario, you know, and... Uh, we like, did have the uh, the luck of the draw scenario for Battle of the Bulge, but I don't think it... It was not. It wasn't as balanced, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, not like um, it's like an impossible chess or whatever. Right. Um, they, you mean really bad chess? Really bad chess. Yes, yeah. yeah. Where they literally ran the pieces. And of course, from his point of view, he's like, "Oh, this game is completely unfair," right? Which gets kind of an you, odd. You'd revel in it, and yeah. But you, a war game like that would feel probably very different. Yeah, it would take a long time to design because you'd really have to commit to like randomness and like. Um, yeah, it'd be very unlikely that random the random scenarios are truly fair. You know, even like a game like you know Memoir Forty Four or whatever, like uh, online, you play that game and it'll tell you up front like this scenario here, the allies only win thirty percent of the time, and you just like know that going in, and you're like, okay, well this is not fair, but like maybe I'll be I'll be in the thirty percent, you know. Right. But historical wargaming is sort of kind of know the Germans lost, right? But, <laughs> but you have to balance the game so that within the the victory conditions of this game, yep. they have a reasonable chance of, of winning. Yeah. And uh, that was, it, we, we did look at our metrics there to, to see if that kind of thing worked out. Right. Yeah. I think there might have been some, some small tweaks to that. I mean, that game had been fairly heavily paper prototyped before right. it was sure. turned digital. Yeah. One of the things that didn't work well was the paper prototype. They'd come up with a like a solitaire play system effectively. They thought they knew what the AI would would be, right? And it turned out we tried to implement that, and it didn't work very well. And we ended up with a totally different AI scheme because the AI wasn't it wasn't performing well enough. Or it like... wasn't yeah, it wasn't that good enough. Sure. Even though the human designers had designed the solo play AI, yeah, it didn't actually take everything into account. I think like supply wasn't taken into sure. account. It was more positional and well positioned. You guys tried to write down the algorithms by hand, basically, for the paper version? I mean I like, think they did. This is that's gonna be I, hard to make an AI good enough I, yeah, to do I think, it that way. That's gonna be super hard. Yeah, it did <laughs> Yeah, that was I think the part where the uh, computer side people had to take step in and Right, right. Yeah. Miguel Nieves did the AI for that and made it work fairly well and we got better as we Partly as we had better um, iPads as a technology, we could do more um, branching type AI in addition to um, the agents we had for getting the term for the AI techniques because I didn't do them. Sure, yeah. Um, but like the Drive on Moscow had better AI and it could do more thinking ahead type of stuff as well as and with the original iPad that we, iPad 1, yep. you didn't have the processing power that we just... You wouldn't want to play it. Well, the other thing about random maps versus what you guys did is 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 an, is an advantage for the AI designer, right? If you know that the scenario has a certain setup, and you can you can be pretty good at the beginning of the game, obviously, because uh, although you do, I suppose you have to really make sure you understand your game, and you may not understand your game until after you release it and you see how players do. So you might have to go back and right. <laughs> improve the AI significantly. Um, but yeah, so it's an interesting contrast, though, talking about this game, you know, versus Dragon Pass, because this game is completely on the other end of the transparency. It's spectrum. completely transparent. You, know, you have to make everything totally open and clear. Um, which strategy games on PC or iPad or whatever don't necessarily do. 
So like there is like this philosophical thing of like it still has to kind of feel like a board game. It's kind of this, this weird state, right? Like it was never act well, it was a board game, right? You designed it by hand, but you never sold it, right? So it's never there's no right. there's no commercial physical version of it. Yet you guys had to still adhere to kind of like a philosophy of board game design. Is that you know? That I think that's sense? yeah. It was intended to appeal to the the board game audience, which and cross over to the digital audience, right? So you're almost like you had to give yourself your own restrictions when you were designing it. Like, you know, there are certain things you would kind of like, well, we can't do that because that's at odds with what. Right. You had counters. Right. And uh, combat results tables. Right. Not, you weren't rolling percentile dice. Right. Exactly. Like the dice, you know, the randomness could be a lot more complicated, but you want to make it so like people and, had to Yeah. It wasn't a two-step process to. Yep. Yep. Cool. Um, all right. Well, we're almost done. So I just want to ask one the what I usually like to finish with is asking, like, why why have you like spent so much time making games? Like why why is that something that like you've you've spent a long time in your career with and like you've dedicated so much time to? I think in my case, I mean, it, it almost I've I've always it I haven't even conceived of not doing it in a way. I made my first game in seventh grade, mm -hmm. which is a long time ago now. Yep. And I, it wasn't a career back then, but it was always something, wow, computers can, can do these things. And mm -hmm. So it's, I guess, sort of like the authors who say they have to write. Right. You just can't imagine, can't imagine not doing it. On the other hand, I'm not necessarily massively prolific mm -hmm. like some people. Right. Sure. It took me years to come up with a sequel idea for Six Ages after King of Dragon Pass, but I knew I wanted to do it. What, what, did, what was the appeal of game design for you? I think... Uh, Connects to the fact that I like to play games and mm. share them with others. Right. Maybe showing off my art as, a, as it were. It's a pretty terrible art form in a lot of respects, but... Right. You wanted to see what you could do in this, this thing that you loved. Right. And, you know, King of Dragon Pass really was an attempt to make something that hadn't been made before. Sure. I mean, not in the... Hopefully not in the super egotistical sense, but... Well, sure. I'd rather play a game like this than... These games get it wrong. I could do it better. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's been there's probably a lot of games that came out in '99 that sold a lot more, but have people don't remember it them as strongly as Dragon Pass because yeah, it's it stood out then and it still stands out now. So, well, for one thing, we didn't do polygons, so we didn't date. Right. I kind of cheated and have infinite yep. polygons. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point too. Yeah, a lot of games from '99. It's probably one of the best looking games from '99 now because. It's, and I think <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually the sour spot for games. Yeah, that's one. You're not trying to make period. your retro games look like yeah. that era. You're trying to <laughs> no make one's, it look like an earlier era. No one's ever going to do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for talking. I think people are going to really going to enjoy this. So it's been fun. Thanks. Cool.